Hey there, this is Erica Kelly, host of the podcast Southern Fraud True Crime. Each week, I take a look at a different Southern crime. And like any good gossip, I'm interested in anyone or anything. I cover contemporary and historical cases, and I love listener suggestions. Come join me as I explore the dark underbelly of the Deep South. I'm a one-woman show in a narrative format, kind of like sitting by the fire and listening to a story. So pull up a chair and subscribe if you're interested. I'd love to have you. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and just about any podcast platform. Just search for Southern Fried True Crime. Until then, y'all take care. You are listening to the Already Gone Podcast. Sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. July 15th, 1993. That's when the story first hit the newspaper. Just two columns with her school photo, 15-year-old girl missing from Niles. Her mother knew before that, though, as mothers often do, that Becky was gone, that she didn't run away, she wasn't misbehaving. Something happened to her. Her mother also knew who was responsible for her daughter's disappearance. It would just take a few years to prove her theory. By the time the story made the paper, Becky had been missing for a couple of days, last seen on Monday, July 12th, around lunchtime. A note, scrawled in her feminine hand, left behind to say where she was going and who she was meeting with. That note will be the only sign of Rebecca Lynn's doe, Becky to those who loved her, for the next two years. Keep this handwritten note in mind, as we will be talking about it later. Come with me to a hot summer day in 1993, when a 15-year-old girl put her trust in the wrong person and paid the ultimate price. Niles, Michigan sits in the southwest corner of the state, closer to South Bend, Indiana than any large town in Michigan. In fact, the city is just a few miles north of the University of Notre Dame. At just six square miles, it's a small town, both literally and figuratively. Sitting on the banks of the St. Joseph River, Niles is host to a series of events like the Apple Festival Parade and Niles River Fest. The town is surrounded by larger Niles Township, where Becky Stowe lived with her mom. Niles is where Diane Stowe raised her two girls, Cindy and Becky. Becky Stowe, dark-haired and pretty, was the younger of Diane's daughters. They lived an unremarkable existence, happy, ordinary, peaceful. Until July of 1993. At that point, older sister Cindy was an adult, out on her own, married with two young sons, boys that Becky loved and enjoyed spending time with. In the summer of 1993, Becky is 15 years old. It's the summer between her freshman and sophomore year at Brandywine Junior Senior High School. Becky stands 5 feet 6 inches tall and weighs about 120 pounds. 
her dark hair cut short like actress Demi Moore. Like other girls her age, Becky likes music, roller skating, sleepovers with friends. She's a typical teenager, enjoying her life. She's also interested in boys, and in the weeks before she disappeared, she'd been seeing a local boy, Robbie. On that July Monday when she was last seen, Becky was visiting with a school friend who lived on Edison Road in nearby Milton Township. Her friend, Jackie, went out, leaving Becky at the house. And when Jackie returned, she found a note from Becky, also left at the house were Becky's cigarettes and personal items. The television was on, the curling iron still plugged in. It was like Becky popped out for a quick talk with someone, expecting to return right away but she wouldn't be seen again. When Diane Stowe contacted the police to report Becky missing, she had to admit that, yes, Becky had run away previously, but only for a couple of hours. She was never gone overnight or for days at a time. This is different. Diane felt it. Something was wrong, seriously wrong. When the police search Becky's bedroom, they find no evidence of a plan to run away. But they do discover the birthday card and gift for Diane Stowe. Becky bought them before she went missing and then hid them in her room, waiting for July 15th to come so she could surprise her mother. Diane places calls to all of Becky's friends and to the boy she'd been seeing that spring and summer. But no one has seen her. Local papers pick up the story and Becky's face and that she is still missing was in the Niles Daily Star and the South Bend Tribune. Headlines like, Niles Girls Still Missing, Niles Family Still Without Word on Missing Girl. The area is searched on foot and on horseback, looking for any sign of Becky, but there is nothing. No evidence, no clues. Becky Stowe is gone. Tracking dogs could not find her scent. Diane did her own searches, and when she came across a grave along a trail Becky sometimes used as a shortcut, she dug it up, finding only the remains of someone's pet dog. July turns to August, and Becky is classified by the police as involuntary missing. Her case likely received this label as there is no evidence of foul play, but leaving behind her money and personal items, it's unlikely the teenager just walked off on her own. As the Labor Day holiday approaches, families are preparing their children for back to school. Not Diane Stowe. She's trying to raise money for a reward and putting up flyers hoping someone will recognize her missing child so Becky can come home. Diane's employer, Tyler Refrigeration Corporation, helped pay for flyers. Back in the early 90s, printing costs were still high, especially for color prints. Diane would be frustrated in the months ahead by people pulling down Becky's flyers. She would not be deterred, posting them again the very next day. Diane would later estimate that she posted nearly 100,000 flyers for her daughter, including mailing them to supporters in other communities. In the early 1990s, there was no social media. You couldn't create a post and have it shared thousands of times. There was little you could do aside from making telephone calls and posting flyers in public areas and hoping for news or television coverage of the case to get the word out about your missing loved one. 
In October, a fundraiser is planned to generate reward money. Diane Stowe is a single mother. She doesn't have the means to fund a reward. A rummage sale is held at the local church to benefit the fund. A bank account is set up. People can contribute directly to the reward if they so choose. Sadly, not even a reward leads to the resolution of Becky's disappearance. The first week of November, Becky's birthday came and went. A sweet sixteen without a birthday girl. It was a long, cold, difficult winter. Diane rented a lighted sign to place in front of her home. The message read, Becky Stowe, vanished, reward, call Michigan State Police, along with the number to the local state police post. July 1994 brings the one-year anniversary of Becky's disappearance. There are more stories in the paper and on the news, but no answers. November of 1994 brings Becky's 17th birthday, and Diane again marks the day without her youngest child. Becky's case is quiet and cold. The community isn't talking about it, except for Diane and Cindy, and of course Becky's many friends. In the spring of 1995, Diane Stowe watches Becky's friends, high school students in a year ahead of her, including Becky's former boyfriend, go through the rites of passage experienced by many high school seniors. The last homecoming game, spirit week, skip day, prom, graduation. The class of 1995 graduates, and some head off to college. Others leave the community for travel or work, and one of them stays home in Niles. This is a girl who dated Robbie Lehman for more than a year. Her name is Ashley. Ashley knew Becky. Not well, but in the way you know people in your school. You see them in the hallway. Maybe you share a homeroom or a math class. Ashley was aware that in the summer of 1993, her boyfriend, Robbie, had dated Becky Stowe. Ashley and some of her other friends and classmates heard the strange things that Robbie said about Becky. They heard Robbie joke that he'd killed her, that he knew where her body was. But not one of the teenagers who heard him say these things, that heard him talk about killing Becky and where her body ended up, none of them spoke up. They didn't tell their parents or a teacher or a cop. They said nothing. Of course, since Robbie was seeing Becky when she vanished, police spoke with him. He was interviewed. Robbie took and passed a polygraph. He had an alibi that he and his cousin Gary went hunting the day Becky disappeared. He hadn't seen her. He couldn't help. Sorry. If you're wondering where law enforcement focused when Becky disappeared, they looked hard at Diane's live-in boyfriend. It seemed they liked him for the murder. He was questioned and followed, and his friends interviewed. Police pursued him to the point where he ended the relationship with Diane and moved away from Niles, leaving Diane alone at the lowest point of her life. Meanwhile, Robbie had a wonderful senior year. Handsome, dark-haired Robbie with his blue pickup truck. Robbie, the popular kid. Robbie, the high school athlete. He'd come around plenty to see Becky in the months before she vanished. Once Becky was missing, so was Robbie. He didn't visit Diane. He didn't help out with searches or come to vigils. In fact, Diane recalled only once that Robbie had helped look for Becky. She found his absence strange and unsettling. 
especially since the note that Becky left the day she vanished, the note scrawled in her feminine hand, five words, went to talk to Robbie, with the word two replaced by the number, went to talk to Robbie, Becky's last communication with anyone aside from her killer. While Diane Stowe had her suspicions, Ashley knew Robbie killed Becky. He'd told her the truth late one night, that Becky was pregnant. He had to kill her. He'd pressured Becky to have an abortion to terminate the pregnancy, but Becky refused. Robbie didn't want to have a baby. Not yet. He was too young, and Becky was too young. Robbie knew that he wasn't ready to have a baby because his own sister became pregnant in high school, and her pregnancy caused such stress and upset in his family. Robbie couldn't let that happen again, so he took care of it. His late-night confession does not cause Ashley to break things off with him. In fact, she will hold on to his secret for months. By the fall of 1995, Ashley can no longer keep it to herself. Robbie murdered Becky. She knows it, and she sits down with her parents to ask them what she should do. Ashley's parents immediately call the police so Ashley can share her story with them. What Robbie told her, what he did to 15-year-old Becky Stowe two years earlier, and where he concealed Becky's remains, her body hidden so well for so long. The news is staggering. Not only did Robbie murder Becky, burying her in a hole he'd prepared the day before, he killed her after she told him she was pregnant with his child. Diane Stowe lost her daughter and a grandchild all at once. While police follow up on Ashley's story, they get eyes on Robbie Lehman. He's gotten away with murder for a long time. They don't want him to get away again. Rebecca Lynn Stowe, Becky to those who knew and loved her, is found buried on property belonging to Robbie's cousin, Gary. Robbie's cousin who provided an alibi for Robbie that they'd been hunting on the day Becky disappeared. Diane's mother will tell the press that the alibi was always ridiculous. No one goes hunting in July. On October 5th, 1995, police arrest Robert Lehman III, a.k.a. Robbie, for the murder of Becky Stowe. According to a report in the Detroit Free Press, when Robbie was giving a statement to the Michigan State Police about the murder, his father burst into the room. Did you kill this girl? Robbie told him that he had. And when his father asked why, Robbie responded that Becky was pregnant, and he didn't want to put the family through that again. And his father responded, So you put us through this? When Becky's body is removed from the grave Robbie Lehman dug the day before he murdered her, she's found in a sitting position, her remains too decomposed to determine if she was indeed pregnant at the time of her death. When asked, Robbie cannot say for certain if Becky was dead when he buried her, and he admits that it is possible that she was buried alive. In October of 1995, two and a half years after she vanished, Becky is laid to rest at Silverbrook Cemetery in Niles. Robbie's family hires attorney Timothy Dowling to defend him. Dowling asks for postponements. He's working on a diminished capacity defense for his client, who was only 16 at the time of the murder. 
Dowling's plan is to link the murder of Becky Stowe to abuse Robbie suffered as a child while attending Small World Daycare Center. For Robbie's defense, we have to go back to the 1980s. 1984, in fact, when a man named Richard Barkman operated the Small World Daycare Center along with his wife, Rebecca. Young Robbie Lehman attended this daycare. It was a shock to families and the community when Barkman was accused of having sexual contact with children at the daycare, threatening to, quote, snap their neck if they told anyone of his actions. Barkman faces 19 counts of criminal sexual contact with a child. His wife, Rebecca, is charged with failure to report child abuse. Barkman's wife is known to the children as Miss Becky, and you can see where the defense is going with this. Robbie Lehman was traumatized as a young child with a fear of Miss Becky. When another Becky puts him in an upsetting and stressful situation, he reacts with violence, snapping Becky's neck, the way Richard Barkman threatened to snap the necks of children who told on him. When the case goes to trial in early 1997, the question is, Will the jury believe Dowling's strategy, or will Lehman be found responsible for Becky's murder? The trial of Robert Lehman III in the murder of Becky Stowe begins in January 1997. It's defense attorney Timothy Dowling facing Cass County Prosecutor Scott Teeter. Dowling calls Dr. Sheridan McCabe to the stand to testify on behalf of his client. McCabe will tell the court that Lehman has post-traumatic stress disorder, which clouds his thinking and means he can struggle with cause and effect. McCabe tells the court that Lehman digging a hole on one day and bringing his pregnant girlfriend to the area the next day were not linked in his head. He describes Lehman as scatterbrained. This testimony aligns with Attorney Dowling's plan to have Lehman found guilty of manslaughter rather than first- or second-degree murder. I suspect Dowling knew that Lehman would be going to prison. I believe that his strategy was to see Lehman serve 10 or 15 years for the murder, not a life sentence. The Cass County coroner will testify that Becky Stowe was strangled before being buried on the Jefferson Township farm where her body was recovered in 1995. The coroner also tells the court that her remains were badly decomposed to the point where it could not be determined if she was pregnant at the time of her death. Lehman's mother, Kathy, takes the stand to testify on behalf of her son. She tells the court about Robbie attending Small World Daycare Center, where the owners were charged with molestation of the children, charged with abusing them. When asked why she didn't pursue counseling for Robbie, she tearfully tells the court that she hadn't dealt with sexual abuse from her own childhood and she wasn't able to get help for her son when he needed it. On cross, Prosecutor Teeter gets Kathy to admit that there's no proof, no record of Robbie actually being abused at the center. He was not named in any of the charges against the Barkmans. Robbie may have been a victim and may have seen or been subjected to abuse, but it's not on record anywhere. And listeners, to be clear, at no time was the court cruel or unkind to the mother of Robbie Lehman. To the contrary, people are sympathetic toward her. Even Diane Stowe understands Kathy's desire to protect her son. Robbie Lehman will not testify in his own defense. 
The smooth talker who passed a polygraph and offered a false but corroborated alibi does not take the stand during his trial. The trial lasts for three weeks, and it is a long, emotional, exhausting process. On January 29, 1997, the jury returns a verdict, guilty of first-degree murder. Robbie Lehman shows no emotion when the verdict is read. Attorney Dowling reads a statement from the Lehman family, saying that they love and support Robbie and have genuine sympathy for the family of Becky Stowe. At the end of February, a sentencing hearing is held. Lehman addresses the court, apologizing to the Stowe family for his actions and thanking his own family for supporting him. Prosecutor Teeter reminds the court that there are no wins here. Two families have lost a child. Judge Michael Dodge sentences Robert Lehman III to life in prison without possibility of parole. Whatever your thoughts are on Robbie's reasons for murdering Becky, it's hard to get past the knowledge that he dug a hole for her body the day before he killed her, leaving the shovel at the dig site to make it easier to conceal her remains. It's clear that Robbie planned her death and left the shovel in place for his own convenience. With the trial complete, Lehman's attorney appeals the sentence, and in 2000, the Michigan courts rule that Lehman should have had a juvenile disposition hearing prior to sentencing, and that he should be resentenced. Remember, Lehman was only 16 when he murdered Becky Stowe, and he was 20 years old when tried for her murder. In February of 2000, almost three years after he was given his original sentence, Judge Michael Dodge resentences Lehman to life in prison without possibility of parole. There are dozens of people in attendance, including Becky's mother, Diane, who has remarried and attends with her husband, Jim Ferris. Diane met Jim after Becky disappeared. He volunteered to help put up missing persons flyers. Diane relied on him during the two years Becky was missing, and in 1997, she told the press, quote, I feel I wouldn't have made it without him and my family. At the time of this writing, Robbie Lehman is 41 years old, and he resides at the Ernest C. Brooks Correctional Facility near Muskegon, Michigan. Becky's mother, Diane, who searched valiantly for her daughter and fought for her killer to face justice, died in 2015. Per her wishes, she was cremated and laid to rest with her daughter, Becky. Becky's friends keep her memory alive. There is a Becky Stowe memorial page on Facebook if you are interested. Already Gone is a bi-weekly true crime podcast focused on Michigan and the Great Lakes region. You can check us out on Twitter or join the Already Gone podcast discussion group on Facebook. If you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions for cases to cover, email me, host at alreadygonepodcast.com. This episode was a listener suggestion, and I owe a big apology to the listener because I cannot find your name. So you know who you are, and thank you so much for suggesting this case. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Your reviews help other listeners find the show and the cases discussed here. Also, a friendly reminder to check out my latest project, Don't Talk to Strangers. It's a long-form podcast focused on a series of unresolved child murders. 
This podcast literally focuses on the serial killer that I grew up with in Oakland County. Join us as we explore the stories of these young victims, impact on the community, and what happened to the investigation into these crimes. You can subscribe to Don't Talk to Strangers now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. (laughs) 